at you from the One Stone Recording and Mastering Studios in New Brunswick, New Jersey. This is the Way in Boxing Podcast with your host, Matt Ward. Welcome to Season 2 of the Weigh-In Boxing Podcast. This episode of the Weigh-In features my interview with Frederick Romano. Frederick is a boxing writer and historian who recently wrote the book, The Golden Age of Boxing on Radio and Television, a blow-by-blow history from 1921 to 1964. The Weigh-In Boxing blog and podcast is brought to you by Bulletproof Products. Support your healthy lifestyle and the Way in Boxing blog and podcast by shopping Bulletproof products. You can click on the link on our website. Without further delay, here is the Way in with Frederick Romano. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. Thanks, Matt. My name is Frederick V. Romano. I'm a boxing author. I've written two books. My first book was The Boxing Filmography, American Features from 1920 to 2003, and my current book is The Golden Age of Boxing on Radio and Television, a blow-by-blow history from 1921 to 1964. When did you become interested in the sport of boxing? I think the 1976 Olympics is when I first became interested with the fights with that great team with Howard Davis was the captain and Sugar Ray Leonard and the Spinks brothers uh, and John Tate. Uh, In 1978, the Ken Norton-Larry Holmes heavyweight championship fight, the WBC championship fight, I think was the first professional match that really uh, piqued my interest. Oh, cool. Very cool. What inspired you to start researching boxing's relationship to television and radio? Yes, I've always been interested in radio and television, just the mediums themselves. Um, so I think it was a natural fit for me as a boxing historian to want to explore radio and television. Also, I found that there really wasn't a lot out there uh, of record in the form of articles and especially books that dealt with the topic. So I thought it would be something good that I would enjoy not only uh, researching and writing about, but I thought it would be something of a service to people who might be interested in that topic that had a hard time finding information. Your latest book is entitled The Golden Age of Boxing on Radio and Television. What was the golden age of boxing on radio and television? I, I think there's a number of uh, periods that you can uh, that you could focus in on, but really for me, I think the period is 1921 to 1964. Uh, radio began in 1920, so obviously that would be a natural starting point. I chose 1921 because those were the that was the year where the first two major boxing broadcasts occurred. Um, as a subtitle. Uh, We might call the television portion 1946 to 1964 because that's when television started uh, with boxing uh, broadcasts in earnest. How did did radio support an increase in popularity for the sport of boxing? Well, radio was very instrumental in increasing uh, uh, boxing's uh, profile. Actually, boxing helped launch radio itself, and it was a symbiotic relationship in which Um, After boxing helped launch radio, radio then drove uh, boxing to further heights. 
Um, the early fights were Dempsey against Carpentier, uh, Leonard against Lou Tendler, uh, Leonard against uh, Jack Britton for the welterweight title, and Britton against Walker. Those four fights were really the, uh, the crucible of, of boxing on radio, and they helped create the financial stability of radio and make boxing be- eventually become a staple on radio. You mentioned a few popular fights on radio. Um, along those lines, what was the most popular fight that aired on radio? Well, the most most popular fight, I think, was the Lewis against Schmeling rematch in 1938. Uh, that fight had uh, over 50 million listeners. Wow. It was the largest audience to listen to any radio broadcast in history up to that date. Wow. So I, I would definitely say that that, that was the, the greatest boxing radio broadcast. Mm-hmm. Chapter 7 of your book is entitled, The Fighters Take on the Microphone. How did the public initially perceive boxers calling fights and commentating on radio and later television? As announcers? Boxing uh, fighters as announcers? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, on radio, uh, there really wasn't... Uh, they would mostly come on as guests. Mm-hmm. Uh I know Jack Dempsey appeared uh, on one of his promotions. He actually promoted a fight with uh, Jackie Fields, and Dempsey came on and was a broadcaster. Um, I don't think it was a popular phenomenon that they would actually be uh, announcing the fights. Um, oh. They were they were mostly uh, maybe an in-between round guest just to add a few words. Oh, so it was like color commentary. Yeah, color commentary or, 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 guest, ap- or guest appearance on, on the radio. Oh, okay. For the fights themselves. Fighters however, appeared often on radio programs where they, um, they, they appeared sometimes on a, as a talk, on a talk show, mm-hmm. giving an interview, um, talking about uh, the state of boxing, for example. Uh, maybe they would even appear on a drama or a comedy show on uh-huh. radio, sometimes portraying a character, but many times just being themselves and capitalizing on their celebrity. Mm-hmm. How about as we moved into television? Was it kind of along the same lines, or it it, it was? I, I, you know, Joe Lewis is a good example for both radio and television. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Lewis started uh, on radio, and when he became a popular fighter, he started to appear on popular radio shows. He was on the uh, Eddie Cantor show. He was on Jack Benny's show, and Fred Allen, and the Bill Stern Sports Reel. Oh yeah. And later on, after he he retired, he continued to capitalize on his celebrity by appearing on an array of programming. Well, one is he actually appeared as a professional wrestler, <laughs> and that was for financial reasons, unfortunately. Yeah. But he also acted as a fight consultant where when they were making a drama that had a boxing component to it, they wanted to make sure that they got the boxing portion right, and Joe Lewis would be hired as a consultant. Joe actually did a little acting on TV and in, in appearing in a, in a number of dramas, and he was also a guest on many shows such as, you know, uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis's show, uh, where he again was appearing as himself, Joe Lewis, and, you know, just capitalizing on his name. Oh, right. He also was eventually a boxing promoter uh, in Los Angeles where he um, used his name again to make some money, and those fights appeared on television. He had a golf tournament. Uh, in the late 40s, an amateur tournament for African-American uh, fighters. and wow. Fighters like Ezra Charles and Sugar Ray Robinson and the other uh, fighters of the day participated in that amateur tournament. So Lewis definitely became a commodity outside of the ring 
on both radio and television. Another guy was Max Baer. Max Baer started on radio and had two two radio series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max was in his first series on NBC called Taxi. Oh yeah. And uh, later on, something called uh, Lucky Smith, mm-hmm. in which he was he played a detective. And basically, it was just Max Bear being Max Bear, and they created these vehicles around him. And even though Max was a very handsome guy, and you couldn't, that didn't translate, obviously, on radio. Yeah. Nevertheless, because he had a kind of a bigger-than-life personality, and people knew what he looked like, uh, the shows did very well, and they were, they were very popular. And then later on, on television, after he retired, he made guest appearances on Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Uh, he was on a show called uh, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, which he portrayed a hunter. Right. And, he, and later on, later uh, later on, he had a, uh, a, a talk show in which he had guests on a station out in Los Angeles and people like Jack Dempsey and actors like Jack Lemmon appeared. So he, he too. They, they were really the biggest, I think, Lewis and Bear because they were well-known, they were great fighters, and... Uh, you know, especially Bear with his personality, it translated yeah. very well to these mediums. Yeah, that nice sense of humor that he's fairly popular for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's very well known. <laughs> Chapter 11 of your book is entitled Boxing and Television Forge a Golden Age. Please tell us more about the impact that television had on the sport of boxing. Well, television was, you know, revolutionary. Um, and again, it was that symbiotic relationship. Boxing was as, as much a uh, component of, of um, building the television industry as television uh, was to propelling the sport of boxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, you know, it started in the late 20s with uh, amateur broadcasts and experimentation, and those were um, far and few in between, and the quality was poor. Uh, but by the late 1930s, uh, they started with some broadcasts in, in, um, uh, that were of a higher quality and uh, of the fighters were of a higher caliber. Lou Nova fighting Max Bear in 1939 was really the first important American bout. And then oh, okay. uh, during World War II, things were somewhat put on a hiatus because equipment could be used for radio and television was pushed into the military. But after the war, uh, when they lifted the restrictions, all of the new technology came back into television, and boxing really took off on television. Mm. Um, in New York, by the late 1940s, New York had seven stations, and all seven were broadcasting their own regularly scheduled boxing programs. Wow! So that's how popular boxing was. It grew, it, it grew uh, very, very rapidly in the late 1940s into the early 1950s. But as I said, boxing really helped develop television as much as television helped build boxing. Oh, cool. How did movie theaters and closed-circuit television help to increase viewership of major title fights? Well, closed-circuit started uh, in, the, in earnest in the late uh, 1940s. Mm-hmm. So at that time, television uh, commercial broadcasts, which are regular TV broadcasts, had already been building some momentum for two or three years. And they were building up audiences very quickly into the millions. Right. Commercial, uh, commercial uh, uh, television... Uh, was then challenged by closed-circuit television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these bouts focused primarily on the cream-of-the-crop fights. Right. We're talking about championship uh, fights, title fights, mm-hmm. for the most part. So we're talking about, percentage-wise, a very small amount of fights. But these were the fights where all the money was involved. Yep. Okay, and, and, the, and those fights came in in the late 40s, and they, they greatly challenged uh, commercial television. But they, what they did was, over time, over the 19th, through the period of the 1950s, they went from just showing them in a few different movie theaters to audiences of several thousand wow. 
by to the early 60s, it had developed into audiences of into the millions. Wow. Um, and, 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 that's, and that's really what happened. It, as the technology improved, they went from just having a few theaters uh, that were not too far from the location of the actual fight to being able to use um, satellite and other modern technology to show them in hundreds of theaters across the country. And that's so the audiences became larger. So whereas you could only maybe get 20,000 people in a live state uh, indoor situation in a, in a stadium or in an outdoor stadium, maybe, you know, you get 40 or 50,000. Now you were able to uh, put seats uh, out in arenas across the country into the into the millions. Wow. And that and that changed the dynamics financially of boxing because you would make more money than. Uh, from closed circuit than you did from the live gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. That, that was the game changer by the late and early 1960s. That that had happened. That's crazy how many people that boxing was able to reach because of movie theaters and closed circuit television. Right, and Unreal. they paid money. You know, commercial TV w- reached millions, but people weren't paying. You know, uh, for a special event, mm-hmm. so that wasn't generating that type of money for the uh, you know for the promoter. Yeah. I remember my dad telling me that he would go to the movie theater in Jersey City when he was a young man and go see like Muhammad Ali fight and everything into the 70s and whatnot. So it's that's it's really amazing just to, to learn about the origins of that through your book. Yeah, it was it's uh, it was quite a period. Um, it was the precursor for what we now know as pay per view. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, pay per view you sit at home. And you're able to watch it. They tried pay-per-view in the 1950s, but they didn't have the technology. You have to put a coin into a box right. on your TV. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's how you would order the fight. And they only did it on an experimental level. Um, and there was politically, there were a lot of people who were against that because there was a big lobby in the television industry to keep that pay-per-view stuff out of the, out of the home. So they had closed circuit, and then people... Uh, modern technology took over, and cable TV, people began to say, I like to stay home and watch TV. They yeah. got used to it, cable TV in the 80s and 90s, and then pay-per-view came in and you know, kind of rewrote the script once again, where now through pay-per-view, we're reaching uh, you know, millions and millions of people worldwide. And you, st- and you sit in your home and watch the fight. It's amazing to see that evolution. Just, just unreal. <laughs> Many of my listeners are from the greater Philadelphia area. One of the individuals who you wrote about in your book is Frank Blinky Palermo, an organized crime figure who is no stranger to Philly boxing circles. Please tell us more about Palermo's relationship to the golden age of boxing on radio and television. Sure. Uh, First, we need to start with a fellow by the name of Frankie Carbo. Right. Because uh, Blinky Palermo was uh, kind of an underling, a lieutenant for for Carbo. Mm -hmm. But uh, Frankie Carbo was a, a New York mobster. Uh, he was involved in the fight game in the pre-television era, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 40s. Uh, they were involved with uh, management. They were known to have um, been involved with some fixed fights. Uh, and Blinky Palermo worked with Carbo with, uh, during the period uh, with a lot of different fighters. Uh, some of the fighters that Blinky Palermo was particularly associated with is one was Ike Williams, who he was actually the official manager of with the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. He was the actual official manager for, for Williams at one point. Yeah, Trenton, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ike Williams, great fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And there were other fighters, uh, principally Johnny Saxton, who was under the thumb of, um, of Blinky Palermo and Carbo. So during that period, what happened was the IBC, the International Boxing Club, uh, took over boxing uh, legally. There was a power vacuum that formed when Mike Jacobs, the uh, famed promoter of Joe Lewis, he became ill, mm-hmm. and his 20th century sporting club somewhat dissolved as simultaneously Joe Lewis retired. Uh, the International Boxing Club had the connections. It was really Norris, the head of the boxing club, that had the connections because he had inherited something of a sports empire from his father, oh. the Chicago Arena and the, uh, the St. Louis Arena, the Olympia in Detroit, um, I should say the Chicago Stadium, by the way, um, as well as holding not a majority interest but a strong interest in stock at Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. So he was well-suited to get involved right into the core of boxing. Yeah, yeah. But by the time uh, Norris had arrived and that had happened, Blinky, Blinky Palermo and Colbert were already around working the, the, uh, at the street level the fight game. They knew all the hangers on. They knew all the managers, the de facto managers. So um, we would describe it as this one fight manager testifying in 1960 before a Senate subcommittee said that Norris was the big boss <laughs> and Carbo was the small boss. Uh. And Frankie uh, and a Blinky Palermo worked hand in hand with Carbo. Um, and there were some fights that were uh, clearly fixed, the Saxton, Braxton, the Bratton fight. Um, was a fixed fight. They asked. They asked Bratton after the fight. You know what happened because he wasn't fighting. Yeah. And uh, his answer was, "I hurt both my hands." <laughs> so you know, only in boxing, you know, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you get those type of answers? I couldn't fight. I hurt. I, yeah. Well, I, I couldn't fight my left because I hurt my right. I couldn't fight my right because I hurt my left. <laughs> um, so he he carved quite a, a path through boxing and was it and is on. It's on. It's it's the record shows very clearly that Carbo had a great sway in what fights appeared on television mm-hmm. because he was connected, Carbo and, and Palermo through him were connected with so many different fighters of the era that um, they were able to uh, influence what was happening um, in the boxing world. Wow. In your opinion, who is the greatest boxing commentator on radio and or television? Okay, it's a um, <laughs> it's a tough question, but yep. uh, well, let's say that Don Dunphy is considered to be the greatest uh, broadcaster on radio and mm-hmm. television of all time. Dunphy started in the '30s doing things other than boxing. For example, he was announcing wrestling and um, and some other other sports and college college sports. Uh, but he got his big chance to announce boxing in a in a in a rehearsal that he did. They, they did a rehearsal with a fight with that had already taken place with Gus Lesnovich and Anton Christophorus. Ah. And uh, while most of the other people tripped over the names, um, he just called them, um, you know, Anton and Gus. <laughs> and that won him a job with the mutual network that was coming in, and it was they were taking over um, radio from NBC. NBC had an uh, important program called Adam... Hats Sports Parade. Oh. And that was announced by Sam Taub and a fellow by the name of Bill Stern. Oh, okay. And there was a change, a shift in the at the upper level there in communications where those fights moved to the mutual network. Mm-hmm. Now, the mutual network didn't want Stern and Taub, not because they weren't good announcers, but because there's such a close association 
with those two announcers and the product of Adam Hats that the new sponsor, Gillette Safety Razor Company, did not want them. They oh. wanted fresh announcers that they could build up to make an association with their product. Gotcha. So they, they auditioned. The winners were Dunphy and um, as a color man. The new color man was a fellow by the name of Bill Corum. And they took over. And from that point, they, they started with their very first fight was Joe Lewis, Billy Kahn, the first fight. So you can imagine their first fight uh, was the one of the greatest fights in history. Yeah. And it just took off from there. And Dunphy stayed on the radio throughout the 50s and the 60s, and uh, the 40s and the 50s, rather. And by, the, by 1960, uh, he then again began appearing on television as, a col- as, the, um, as the blow-by-blow. Oh. Announcer. People also associate Dunphy with being on television in the 50s because at the end of the radio uh, broadcast, as late as the late 1940s, Dunphy was in the ring mm-hmm. and he was interviewing the fighters. So if you're listening to a radio broadcast in 1949, uh, you would hear Dunphy come and do the post fight on the radio after you heard him call the fight. But then the people on TV would see him as well. So the people become ad- accustomed to Dunphy during the 1950s in the ring with the mic. And then by about 1960, there he is calling the, the blow-by-blow. He took over uh, when Jimmy Powers and the Friday Night Fights ended, and they switched them to ABC. Mm-hmm. From NBC, he, uh, Dunphy took over. So that was a quite a you know, 25-year period there where Dunphy was involved with both radio and television. And he had the style. He, had, um, you know, he struck the right balance between um, you know, being, uh, calling the action but not exaggerating it. Yeah. And... Um, you know, when the fighters weren't doing a lot in the ring, he would talk about other things. <laughs> uh, he would talk about the way they moved around or, yep. you know, throw in a little anecdote or something. So, but he tried to keep it on the level, which is one of the reasons why I think Dunphy was was uh, enjoyed by so many people. And he was a kind of a trustworthy announcer, you know. You, yeah. you felt comfortable with him. He seemed like a nice guy. He genuinely loved fighters. And, and I think that came across to the audience as well. Kind of reminds me of uh, Teddy Atlas today a little bit. Yeah, people are, fam- are familiar with him, but I think At- Atlas is a little bit more. Uh, he, he's a little bit more confrontational. Don was not confrontational, um, but he had a great rapport with the audience. And, he, and I think in the book I described it as he had a concrete, uh, uh, like Walter Concrete. He became that trusted uh, mm-hmm. older fellow that you would go for your boxing news, as Cronkite was on for regular news. Mm-hmm. Uh, called a, you know, a, a con- uh, Walter Cronkite-like uh, uh, you know, paternalism mm-hmm. uh, that he developed in later years. And then he finished his career doing some great uh, closed-circuit broadcasts in the early 1980s with uh, Sugar Ray Lennon and Thomas Hearns and, oh, and right. a couple other big fights before he you know, finished about 1985, I think, is when he... He stopped broadcasting. It's a storied career. Yeah. Stuff yeah. that legends are made of. <laughs> yeah, he's a, and he's a legend. He is a boxing legend. So anyone who picks him, I think, is making a wise choice. But there were, just on a footnote, uh, a fellow by the name of Ted Using was a great, was a great uh, television announcer uh, and started in radio as well. And uh, Jimmy Powers was very popular um, on the NBC Gillette fights as well as uh, – Fighters like um, Steve Ellis and Russ Hodges on the Paps Blue Ribbon fights. Oh, okay. What was your favorite section or chapter to write in this book? Well, I think there was a couple. I, I really enjoyed writing about um, organized crime in boxing. Um, I've always read uh, extensively on organized crime. My grandfather was a, a treasury agent for the U.S. government. Oh, cool. And uh, had personally dealt with 
um, many high-profile mobsters, including Joe Valachi and mm-hmm. Carmen Galante in their earlier years, uh, when they weren't well-known gangsters. Uh, so I've done a lot of reading about organized crime, and every once in a while you would hear something about boxing and uh, read something about boxing, and uh, it was a lot of fun to delve into that into great detail and learn about that. And, you know, of course, a lot of it was Carbo and, and Blinky Palermo. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Are you currently researching other topics for future books? I'm always reading and um, doing some type of researching. I I will uh, definitely um, pick a project at some point in the near future and, and get into it in earnest. But I, um, I like to write about uh, things that haven't been covered to death. I think it's like, you know, the Civil War, for example, people... There's probably about 50,000 books out there yeah. on the Civil War. <laughs> so if you're going to write about the Civil War, you have to be really careful because unless you're really finding something new, what's the point? Right. What's the point of spending several years of your life to only to regurgitate what five other or 20 other people have already gone into in detail? Yeah. Um, so I try to find something that hasn't been covered to death, and I think that hopefully I'll find something that's unique like my first two books, and something that people will say, hey, I've always been interested about this, but I really never found much on it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Along with being a boxing writer and historian, you're also an amateur boxing judge in New York. Please tell us more about that. Sure. Um, I haven't done it in a while, but um, for some time in the 1990s, I judged the um, amateur fights in New York, Mm -hmm. principally the New York Golden Gloves, all the way from the preliminary fights all the way through the finals which were held at, um, at the, what was called then the Paramount Theater, which is the small room at the Garden that they call sometimes. Right, right. It was originally known as the Felt Forum, and it's taken on many, many different names. Yep. As each corporate sponsor comes in and out, <laughs> they, they tend to change the names of that room. It's a 5,000-seat um, facility that's built right, on the, right next to the, um, the main building there, the Madison Square Garden itself. I started in the 90s doing that as a judge. I was always a judge. I did some fights, fighters who went on to professional careers of note. One was Zab Judah, who was a world champion. Yeah. Uh, another world champion was Lan- uh, Lonnie Bradley, who became the WBO oh, cool. uh, middleweight champion. Uh, it was a great experience. They score. Uh, they actually count punches mm-hmm. in the amateurs, and you 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 know a knockdown is not worth any more than a than a than a lightly landed but cleanly landed jab. Mm-hmm. So it's not like professional boxing. So you're really taught to count punches and keep track on that basis. Uh, later on in the amateurs, they started with kind of the electronic calculation, where you would kind of hit keys to count punches. Oh yeah, I saw that in the Olympics. Yeah, which they did at the higher level. I I, I was I did not ever do that. Uh, I kind of like just kind of doing it. Um, you know, following in my eyes and kind of keeping track in, in my head. And, mm-hmm. You know, one fighter's ahead by a certain five five punches, four punches, three punches. It's a little difficult to score that way. It's not how you score. Yeah. You really want to score. It's hard to enjoy the fight when you're scoring. You're really, really on task. Right, right. You know, it's like a tra- air traffic controller. You know, you're just trying to you're just trying to stay on point every step of the way because you you know because you you you're, you have to count is what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but it was it was a great experience. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of camaraderie uh, with those people, and you know, uh, you know, for work reasons and other you know personal reasons, I, I wasn't able to you know stay with it forever. But uh, I worked with a couple of people who uh, referees who went on to um, pretty nice professional careers. One is a guy named Petey Santiago. Yeah, yeah. Um, a judge by the name of Frank Lombardi. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
another referee by the name of uh, Benji Estevez. Yeah, Benji. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I came up with kind of in the ranks with them in the uh, the amateur program in New York. Very cool. Is there anything else you'd like to say to my listeners? Uh, well, I'd just like to say I, I enjoy your, your podcasts. Thank you. I think it's a great service that you do to the boxing community to give people an opportunity to meet and uh, learn about various aspects of the sport, whether they be writers or behind-the-scenes people or uh, trainers or fighters themselves. Um, and uh, you know, I look forward to your podcasts in the future, and I, I look forward to remaining connected to the boxing world and making my own contribution. Great. Fred, thank you very much for joining me this well, afternoon. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for tuning in to the second episode of the second season of The Weigh-In. Special thanks to my guest, Frederick Romano, and you, the listeners. Please check out The Weigh-In Boxing Blog and Podcast on both Facebook and on our website, www.thewayinpodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Matt Ward, and this is The Weigh-In.